For the next hour, you'll be leaving the show me state and entering the show me the money state. So stop what you're doing, grab a pen, and get ready to learn. Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group will be your guide for straight talk and honest answers about living the life you deserve in retirement. So So prepare prepare to to be empowered. Now, here are your show me the money hosts, Randy Floyd, Jake Floyd, and Jeff Shade. Good morning and welcome to Show Me the Money with Jake Floyd, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade and as you know, I'm just here to ask the questions, but of course the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. Jake, how you doing this fine morning? Another great day in the Ozarks, Jeff. You bet. It's always a great day in the Ozarks, and it's a great day when I'm able to sit down with you here on Saturday morning, talk about people's finances and getting to and through retirement. But of course, it's always just fun talking to you, Jake. We don't uh, have a chance to talk as much as we would like. And if we really had a radio show talking about all the things that we like to talk about, it would encompass, I think, a lot more than just finances. We'd talk about fishing and just life in general. But anyway, we've just got an hour here to help people, as I said, manage their wealth and get to and through retirement and specifically in this first part of the program, Jake, it's to talk about current events. I read something that is really rather frightening and I'm going to share the headline here and get your comments on this. U.S. banks suffer $18,900,000,000 in losses as J.P. Morgan Chase and Capital One take big hits from bad loans. People are defaulting on these loans right and left. It seems that the government isn't the only one that's in debt, Jake. Yeah, so I mean, that sounds to me like the U.S. banks suffered a loss greater than the amount that the government used to help Maui during the forest fires that's over there. Amazing. And that's a shockingly large number, even though for the government spending, it's a shockingly low number to help uh, one of our 50 great states. However, yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely a lot of money and losses. I think it's probably just the tip of the iceberg, though, because as we talked about last week and we continue to talk about, you know, the consumer just is leveraged to the hilt, you know. They owe more on their house than they've ever owed before. They owe more as a percentage of their income. They owe more on credit cards as a percentage of their income. And they are paying more interest than they have ever paid in history. And so, I mean, it's just astronomical the amount of debt people are racking up. And so what goes up must come down. And so a lot of these credit card companies in particular, so like Capital One fits that bill, you know, Synchrony and some of these other ones, Citibank is heavily leveraged toward credit card debt, that kind of thing. I really think these companies are really going to have some issues if and when the jobs market starts to turn. Some people say, hey, the jobs market is not going anywhere. It's healthy and it's not going to change. And I would tend to disagree with that statement. I would say that it is inevitable that the jobs market will turn for the worse, meaning there will be more unemployment. And the second that starts to happen, a lot of these banks are going to have to start writing off debt on people that lose their jobs, lose their income, have lower income, all these types of things. And so people are just being lulled to sleep a little bit by Hmm. the endless pay increases now they are paying more for things, but you know all they know is they're making more money, and so they're going to spend more money. And I'm looking at loan losses by the ten big banks in the second quarter here, and Capital One is by far at the top of the list here, writing off something like 2.6 billion dollars in loans, and J.P. Morgan is second. Cap One, of course, does a lot of credit cards, and again, you know, unemployment is pretty good right now. Most people have jobs, and those people who don't want jobs for some reason do not want jobs. I've never been able to figure that out, but it seems like the American 
American way has been to be in debt, and people are just not getting it. And, you know, it just seems that there's going to be a reckoning point here pretty soon for not only the individual, but also businesses. I mean, what's going to happen to businesses if you just can't get loans? Because many businesses rely on those loans on a temporary basis in order to operate. Yeah, and I think there's also, Jeff, a percentage of businesses, and I don't know what this number is, maybe 5 or 10 or 15% of businesses, especially small businesses, that are in the same boat that the consumer is in, meaning, yes, their revenues are up, but their expenses are up much more than their revenues, and they're raking the credit card to keep the business afloat. And so I think that same thing could apply to certain types of businesses, you know, locally here and nationally. Just, again, I, I really think that the idea idea that we can raise interest rates from zero to five and a quarter. We can take the six-month T-bill from basically zero to five and a half. We can take mortgage rates from 2% to seven and a half percent that it hit last week and not have any kind of consequence is just lunacy. Again, I'm not saying that the world is going to end. I'm just simply saying that there will be some kind of fallout from this. You know, I had a lot of clients over the last three months or so up until two or three weeks weeks ago say, you know, hey, you know, this market's running up and, you know, we need to get more aggressive. We need to put new money in. You know, I have this this money over here in savings. Should I put it in? And, you know, I'm like, no, we should not do that. You know, the market is very high. It's very overbought in the short term and we want to take it easy a little bit. Right. And so now the market has corrected down a little bit. And it'll be interesting to see as we get ready to enter September and then obviously October after it, how the market is going to respond during those time periods. And I think, again, there was just all these records of how much everything costs. You know, there was another record of back to school shopping and what Mm -hmm. that cost the average parent. And, you know, I think a lot of that is going on credit cards at 20 and 30 percent interest, which is just crazy. And so at some point, the music will stop and I think there's quite a few less chairs than people uh, running around them. Yeah, and by comparison, Jake, I mean, let's look at 2022 as opposed to 2023. These bank losses are up 75%, 75% over what they were in 2022. So definitely going in the wrong direction. And as I said, if banks are tightening credit, people can't get credit as easily or the interest rates are so high, it really is a recipe for disaster. And I can't think of any time in our history, maybe you you can think of it when it's been in a situation like this where people personally are in so much debt, but also the government is in so much debt. And it seems like maybe the government is turning a blind eye to this and really not focusing on fixing the problem. Yeah, I think that that's very true. And I think that it is unprecedented in American history to have debt to this level versus our GDP while all these people are accruing so much more debt. But I do think there is a little bit of a silver lining that because it's getting so bad, there's quite a few people starting to take notice on both Mm -hmm. sides of the aisle. And people are getting sick of the spending on needless crap. And I think the Ukraine war is a good example of this where I'm not saying it's needless, but at the same time, I don't know that we needed to spend too hundred billion dollars fighting somebody else's war while we have crisis upon crisis in the United States from crime to the border to uh, inflation you know I mean just a lot of different things and I think we need to have a renewed focus on here America but also a renewed focus on simply paying our bills right and starting to maybe try to pay this debt down or at least keep it from going higher 
here in a year or two, the highest budget item on our debt, you know, as far as what we have to pay is the debt service. So it's number two right now. Right. And so it's about to become number one. And so the idea that we're going to be paying more interest on our debt than any other expenditure in the country should scare everybody. And we really need to make sure that we don't allow it to get bigger and that we have a plan to keep from having to finance this debt at five or six percent interest. So, you know, I really think that interest rates are not done going up, but in the next six months, year, 18 months, I think interest rates are going to come down a lot so that we can refinance that debt. And it's just going to be interesting to see how everything unfurls as the Republican primary, the Democrat primary, you know, happen in March, I believe, as we lead up to that and what everybody's talking about. I think there's going to be a lot of talk about Social Security and how to fix it. You know, are we going to reduce benefits? Are we going to means test it? All those types of things. So I think that budget is going to start to become a louder and louder topic of discussion. And I echo your sentiments, Jake, on the government spending. I mean, we have a homeless crisis in the United States like I've never seen before in my life. And I read about the statistics as to why people are homeless. Certainly there are a lot of them that are drug dependent, have mental illness, that sort of thing. But then there is the working homeless, those people who just can't afford a roof over their heads, even though that they are working. And with interest rates so high at this point, unaffordable housing and many parts of the country, those people are moving to where the weather has changed tremendously to other parts of the country like Phoenix and and Las Vegas and those areas that have some real problems. So it is just one of those situations where it doesn't seem to be a really clear-cut answer. But correct me if I'm wrong, I think that maybe a change in administration and public policy and thinking about finances may be a good start. There's no substitute for a strong leader. And I think Joe Biden might be the weakest leader in the history of our nation. You know, there's a few other names that come to mind, but I think he takes the cake. I mean, he just lets everybody run over him, run over us. And we have to, have to, have to, have to fix that. We cannot allow this to happen for another four years. I don't know what will be left. Right. If we get anybody other than Biden in there, I think we'll be fine. But we, we just cannot allow Biden to win this presidency for a second term. Because leadership is very important. The rest of the world depends on American leadership. And when we do not have a strong leader, the forces of evil start to encroach on you know all the parties around the globe, all the countries. And I think if you look at the world and the United States from three years ago versus what it looks like today, you wouldn't even believe it's the same planet just right. from all the, the Irans and the Chinas and the Russias and BRICS and all these things that are just totally unchecked because there's no strong leader in the White House. So I couldn't agree more, Jeff. I think it's very difficult to overstate the importance of having a strong president and somebody who's going to look out for American best interests. Jake, aside from the political part of this, let's talk about the financial part of this. When it comes to people's finances and investing for retirement, I mean, putting money into the stock market and other equity type of investments, how does all this credit tightening affect that? Yeah, so historically during tightening cycles, you know, the market doesn't tend to do real well while we're still tightening. However, on the other side of tightening cycles, the market tends to explode upward as interest rates start to go down. You know, Jeff, a lot of it is caused by the fact that because interest rates went up, things went down. And because things went down, like the economy, the stock market, then we started to lower interest rates. And so that lowering of interest rates is a symptom 
of the problem already being kind of at the bottom. And so we don't lower interest rates until we really have to, which means we're close to the bottom and economy's bad, those types of things, which means we're getting close to a time where things are gonna get good again. So again, I think when I say the market and the economy and things are a little bit over their skis, that's exactly what I'm talking about, meaning we're still hiking rates right now. I think a lot of people are looking forward to the day where we will be cutting rates, but I mean, at this point, we haven't even stopped hiking. So we're a little bit ahead of the, we got the horse before the cart a little bit. And, uh, you know, if anybody who's driven a truck understands that uh, you definitely want to keep that trailer behind the tractor. Jake, for those people who are getting uh, to retirement, they're thinking about how they should allocate their funds. What do you tell them? In other words, do they have questions about what's going on in the economy right now? And what is the advice that you would give those people? Is it just to hold tight? Is it to, you know, put money in safe investments? I mean, what is the answer or even is there a definitive answer? I think it's going to vary pretty widely to, you know, what your time horizon looks like. I think five to 10 years from now, you know, stocks will look incredibly cheap here. But a year from now, that may or may not be the case, meaning it could be not so good over the next six to 12 months, maybe, but five years, 10 years down the road, we're going to be much, much higher. So if you're about to enter retirement, you need to be careful. If you are five years or more from retirement, you should ride this out and keep buying as it goes down because you'll be glad you did on the other side. Jake, I'm sure that our listeners today may have questions about how this economy and how this credit tightening will affect them in their retirement journey. So in light of that fact, we invite you to call us and request your complimentary Floyd Financial Retirement Reviews. Just a friendly conversation with Jake or Randy that'll cover a wide range of topics based on your individual situation so that you can proactively adjust your financial plan to address your retirement journey and any blind spots that may hinder you from reaching your goals. Again, there's no cost. There is no obligation. There is no judgment. Randy and Jake will meet you where you are. That number, 417-889-7233. 417-889-7233. One call could make all the difference. You can also request your complimentary plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Jake, a lot to cover on today's program. Later on, we're going to be talking about avoiding potential tax bombs. But up next, we're going to be talking about planning for retirement in five years. We're going to tell you about the five things that you should consider doing first when our show continues right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready for another helping of some more real money talk? Thought so. Now, here's another serving of Show Me the Money with your hosts, Jake Floyd and Jeff Shea. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd, and in this segment, we're going to be examining if you're planning to retire in the next five years, here's five things to do before you get there. And Jake, if you are planning to retire in around five years, congratulations to you. You're getting close. You're approaching an incredible milestone. You're about to enter, I think, a great next stage in your life's journey. With around five years of work remaining, now's the perfect time to start taking action to get yourself and your finances ready for that future. So let's talk about those five things that you want to consider doing first before you retire. First one here, Jake, is going to be building a plan for health insurance. Really, really important. Yeah, I think that this is maybe one of the most overlooked things by people looking to retire, especially if they're trying to retire before age 65. So because of the way pension plans work and COVID and interest rates and a lot of factors, there's a lot of people that could retire much earlier than 65 over the last three years or so. But 
a lot of people don't retire or can't retire because they don't have a suitable health insurance plan to handle these medical expenses other than their employer plan. And so many, many people, almost everybody really in today's world, gets their health insurance pre-retirement from their employer. Either they pay a portion and the employer pays a portion or they pay it all or the employer pays it all. But it's usually much, much less expensive that way than if you have to go out onto the Obamacare or the you know the exchange to buy health insurance. And so many people are very shocked at what health insurance can cost out on the exchange. So, you know, it's not uncommon at all for a couple to pay $1,500 a month hmm. uh, for health insurance out there on the exchange using the Obamacare system. But I think having a plan, understanding what you're going to do about health insurance before you get to retirement is very key because I do have people that retire and they're like, oh, crap, I forgot about health insurance. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, and then we're kind of cleaning up the spilled milk, right? And so that's one of the biggest things that we talk about, honestly, in somebody that's getting close to retirement is what are you going to do about your health insurance? You know, is a cost sharing program appropriate, like a MediShare or one of those types of programs where it's not technically health insurance, but there's a cost sharing set up. Those are quite a bit less money. Are you going to go on to the exchange and buy health insurance there? You know, if you are going to do that, what is your subsidy going to be? So based on your income, you pay less, basically. If you make less, you pay less for health insurance if you get it on Obamacare. And so what all that looks like, there's professionals out there that we can help direct you to if you don't know anybody, but it's good to have a conversation with somebody who does this all the time, understands how the subsidies work, understands how the plans work to make sure that you're prepared. And then conversely, if you're over 65, you're probably already on Medicare because it's usually cheaper than whatever else you're doing for the same or better coverage. And Jake, I was buying medical insurance for my wife, and yes, her policy was over $1,000 a month. I was covered, but she wasn't covered, and then she got to be Medicare age recently, and it really, really did help. But you're right, those health insurance costs, especially if there are two people and they're pre-Medicare age, you've got to budget on thousands of dollars a month for that, and then you've got to figure, okay... There's dental insurance possibly on that. That could cost, you know, a couple of hundred dollars a month or a hundred and a half. And then you've got vision care and so forth. Yeah, medical insurance, very, very important. And it does prevent a lot of people from retiring. And you mentioned something very important there, too, with MediShare. There are many of these Christian-based medical sharing companies out there. And as you said, it's just sharing the expenses. I mean, they help a great deal. May not be the definitive answer, but uh, definitely they are a lifesaver for a lot of folks. But let's talk about Medicare. Now, once you reach the age of 65, you're eligible for Medicare. There's Part A, and then there is Part B, and then there are these other supplemental plans. So let's explore Part A. What does that cover? Now, I will be the first to, I want to have a disclaimer here on the front end, that I am definitely not a Medicare expert. However, I do understand the basics about Medicare, but if you have specific questions about what plan to use, all those types of things, we do have some people that we work with that can assist you there. So we can kind of take it on a general 30,000 yes. view. So mm-hmm. Medicare Part A, almost everybody has paid into already simply because you are in this country and you've been working, you you kind of automatically qualify for Medicare Part A. There's a handful of exemptions to that with some educators during certain times in the 80s if you had begun being an educator and you accidentally opted out. I, I say accidentally because most people didn't know what they were opting out of, but they chose to opt out and stay on the health insurance that the school provides. So those people are a little bit different. I probably, I won't go down all the details there. If that's you, there's quite a bit to talk about there as far as how you're going to 
deal with health insurance looking forward, but the vast majority of people, I'd say 99% plus, are going to have Medicare Part A already. Medicare Part B, once you turn 65, they'll start taking it out of your Social Security check, or if you're not taking Social Security yet, they will charge you, I believe the number today is $164 a month, and that kind of fills in some of the things that Medicare Part A does not cover. Then you get further down there and you can get a supplement or a Medicare Advantage plan. Advantage plans basically either have very little or no premium, but you have a little bit higher out-of-pocket cost versus a supplement. You pay 100 or 150 or maybe a little bit more dollars a month, but your max out-of-pocket is lower. So a lot of that depends on what kind of health you're in now, how much other medical expenses you already have as to what plan you should choose. Again, I am not an expert, so I don't want to sit here and say, hey, you need to do this or that. But then the plans that you can get kind of fill in the rest of the gaps that are left from Part B. So typically, unless you you have been with the hospital system or something like that, Medicare with a supplement is a big upgrade health insurance wise for the average person, you know, because your max out of pocket is very low and your premium is pretty low, relatively speaking, to what it would be like on the exchange or with a different company. So that's kind of how that works. And with Medicare Part A, of course, that covers most hospital visits and blood, that sort of thing. Part B is more for the doctor's office visits there. And then, as you said, you do have the opportunity to have some supplements. There is a uh, Part G, which is a Medigap plan, which will cover what Part B doesn't. But again, it's an individual situation. So you really have to consult with somebody who knows the ins and outs of this. And I do know that you have a person there at Floyd Financial Group who can help people make the right decision for them. Now, if you are retiring and your employer does not offer coverage for its retirees backing up just a little bit, you may qualify to stay on its plan for up to 18 months through COBRA. But that is something that you'll have to ask about too. So you can pay for it yourself. Very, very expensive with health insurance. If you're age 65 and above, there's Medicare and then there's the opportunity for COBRA. But of course, medical expenses along with taxes, two of the biggest things that you'll face in retirement and very, very important to get that at the top of the list. Next one here, Among the five things to do if you're planning to retire soon is get on top of any debts that you have. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so believe it or not, there's quite a few people that are considering retiring while they still have a quite a bit of credit card debt or you know a couple of vehicle payments or occasionally I see people that have big student loan balances that they've had for 30 years and stuff like that. So it's it's important to get those debts under control, partially just from a good budgeting standpoint, but some of it is just simply from a cash flow standpoint because right. you are spending all this money on interest that is going to require you to have much more income than you would need to have otherwise. So you're going to be hitting your investments harder for income and those types of things. So getting on top of debts is important. Now, I want to say this, that you know if you have a very low mortgage rate, okay, so a lot of people have very low mortgage rates, and some of them are in a big hurry to pay their mortgage off. You know, If you have a 2.5% 30-year mortgage or something like that, paying that off as quickly as possible may not be the very best idea. Now, while it feels good to have the house paid off, that may or may not make sense because if you're only paying two and a half percent interest and you can make five or six percent, right? That means that you are giving up that five or six percent to pay off something that's costing you two percent. Right. And so that doesn't always make sense. Occasionally it can make sense. So there's situations where maybe you're at the tail end of your 30 year mortgage and your payment is a thousand dollars a month, but you only owe thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars on it. In some of those cases, it makes sense to go ahead and pay off the mortgage so that you can get rid of that thousand dollar a month payment and then your cash flow situation is a lot better. These are all things that we 
talk about. Uh, we go down our checklist with everybody that comes in, and we try to make sure that everybody is as prepared as they can possibly be. But everybody is different. Not everybody has a student loan. Some people do. Some people have big student loans. Some people have little student loans. Some people have mortgages. Some people don't have mortgages. Some people don't have credit card debt. Some people do. And so, and all the different combinations thereof. So it's important to get each individual person and understand who they are so that we can make a plan that works best for them. And I think paying off debt, though, that is a good thing to do, whether or not you're getting yes. ready to retire or not. And I'm going to play Dave Ramsey Jr. here a little bit for people. I would suggest that what you do is you make a list of your debt, starting with the smallest one first up to the largest one. And I like to put interest rates next to those two and consider that, but pay off the smallest debt and then go on to the next debt. It's called the snowball effect. And then once that's paid off, the money that you would have used to pay the first and the second one off, you add that to what you would pay on the third one. And it's probably the most effective way to pay off debt, but also consider those interest rates. I would maybe try to bang down the ones that have the highest interest rates first and then go to the lowest ones. But very important to be pretty much debt-free going into retirement. It'll make your retirement so much easier. But the mortgage is one of those, maybe I do, maybe I don't things. And again, you've got to consider the interest rate on that. Some people just like to have a paid off mortgage. It makes them sleep better at night. But remember, your house appreciates whether you own it or not. If you've got a mortgage at two and a half percent and maybe uh, you can make four or five percent on an investment. I mean, you're basically being paid to live in that house. Your house really does appreciate. So it's not just a cut and dry thing. It's really an individual situation. And it's really how you feel about debt in general. But I think not having debt outside of a mortgage is the way to go. We're talking with Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. And if you have questions about the five things that you want to do before getting into retirement, we invite you to call Jake for your no-cost, no-obligation retirement review. To get yours, call 417-889-7233. 417-889-7233. Now, this is just a friendly conversation with Jake to get to know you, and you'll get to know him, and you'll come to the conclusion as to an individual retirement plan that fits your wants, your goals, and your needs. And again, as I said, no cost, no obligation, not going to cost you a dime. Call 417-889-7233. You can also request it online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Time for a break, Jake. When we continue, we're going to continue to talk about the five things that you want to do in preparing for retirement when our show continues here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready to climb a mountain of financial know-how? Good, because it's time for more Show Me the Money with your financial Sherpa, Jake Floyd. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd, and in this segment, we're going to continue talking about the five things you should do within five years of retirement. And Jake, we've talked about building a plan for health insurance. We've talked about getting on top of any debts that you have. Let's move on and talk about building an estimated budget for what you'll be spending. Some people don't like the word budget, so let's just call it a spending plan. So let's talk about that and really being honest with what you're going to spend, too. I think some people miscalculate or they really have a misconception on what they're actually going to spend in retirement. Yeah. So one of the questions that I ask people, usually when we talk about a budget, you know, most people don't have a budget. There's probably maybe 2% or so of the people that I see that have a budget. Every once in a while, I'll have somebody hand me a spreadsheet and say, here's everything I spend in a month, you know, period, the end. Oh, and here's my credit card statement to prove it. You know, but very rarely does that happen. Most people don't know what they're spending. They just know there's more coming in than going out. 
and that's always worked for them to this point. But as you get ready to retire, the budget is very important. And I think one of the ways we kind of explore this is if you don't know what your budget is, a good number to look at is your take-home pay, meaning after you pay your 401k, after you have taxes deducted, health insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security tax, all that stuff. So what actually hits your account is what you're living on for the most part. Now we have to adjust that based on what you're going to do with health insurance and that kind of thing, but it's a good starting point. So if you look at your take-home pay, that's a good place to look to figure out a baseline budget. And uh, another question that I like to ask people is, you know, do you have an emergency fund or a, or a savings account, right? Because if people tell me they're making $100,000 now and they can live on 40000 there should be evidence of that in your savings account, right? Meaning right, if, you, right. if you're living on 40000 and you're making a hundred, there should be a lot of money stacking up somewhere. And if there's not, then maybe you don't understand your spending as well as you think you do. And again, that's not a not an attack. It's just a, you know, just a fact of how finance works. And so, you know, if somebody has a whole bunch of money in savings, what do I know? I know that they're stacking that up from excess income, which means, you know, they probably don't spend anywhere near what they are making. But a budget, like you said, Jeff, is very important and you need to have a track to run on, especially if you are five years from retirement. If you know what your budget is, we can kind of reverse engineer the rest of the plan to make sure that you're going to have enough income to meet your needs looking forward. We need to figure in inflation when that comes in and really just make sure we understand what you're spending, what you're going to need to spend, and how prepared or not prepared you are for that. You know, most people I find are, are plenty prepared, but you know, when you come Come in. This is one of the main things that we will talk about when we're talking about retirement income and actually pulling the trigger on retirement. And Jake, I'm going to repeat my motto. And when your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep becomes your downfall. And I've always lived by that. And basically it just <laughs> says, spend less than what you earn and you should be okay. But when it comes to having an emergency fund, I think that if you put money in an emergency fund and let's say that it's only earning 5%, but you've got debt at 15, 20%, probably better to pay off the debt first before you fund that emergency fund, at least to the extent that you should have it. Now, I would say always have about $1,000 or more in an emergency fund until you pay off the debt. Then your goal should be, I think, three to six months in that emergency fund. So build an estimated budget for what you'll be spending. And Jake, do you think that most people spend more, less in retirement or about the same? You know, that's kind of a difficult question, Jeff, because it really depends on the person. I have people that spend way less in retirement. I have people that spend way more in retirement and I have people that don't change. But I would say on average, you probably spend a little bit less in retirement of your gross income because of those things that I was talking about. You don't have to fund your 401k. You don't have to pay the big health insurance expensive plan. You don't have to pay social security tax anymore. You have to pay tax on your social security, but not social security tax out of your paycheck, right? Right, so you're, right. There's a lot of those expenses that you don't see every time you get paid, but that are coming out. So I would say based on a gross number of income, you spend less. Based on what your take home is, I think a lot of people end up pretty close to what they take home. That's about what they're going to spend in retirement on average. And don't forget those expenses that you had planned for, the big expenses and things like taking that Alaska cruise that you always wanted to take, or maybe you're going to need to replace a vehicle in the near future too. That comes as part of that budget and you really should account for that. Let's talk about understanding what automatic income you'll get and when. 
Yeah, Jeff. So when it comes to automatic income, I would say for the vast majority of people, this is going to be Social Security, you know, and while it is automatic, the dependability of Social Security is starting to become a little bit questioned because of the things that Congress are talking about now. Some of the presidential candidates talking about potentially making cuts to Social Security or adjusting ages that you're able to file for it at and all kinds of different things. And so when it comes to automatic income, Social Security, Security. Pensions are another form of automatic income. If you have annuities that, that are annuitized, that would be automatic income where you don't have to think about it. And using income writers on annuities would be another way to get an automatic paycheck. You can set up your brokerage account to pay you automatically each month. Now, that's a little bit different because it's coming off of a balance, so you need to understand how much you're withdrawing versus how much your balance is. And those are all very important things that we can help you examine when you come in for your consultation. But when it comes to automatic income, understanding how how Social Security works, understanding, you know, if you're five years out from retirement, what it's going to look like if you turn Social Security on at 62, 65, 67, 70 years old. You know, there's a lot of things to consider with Social Security. You know, a lot of people ask me questions about when they should take it. You know, that's going to vary widely depending on the person. But, you know, one of the big factors to consider there is to make sure that you're not taking Social Security early and then still making too much money to where you can have to pay it back. If you make more than about $20,500 in a year, if you take it early, you have to start paying back $1 for every two that you make. So avoiding those little pitfalls is important, but understanding what, you know, air quotes, automatic income you're going to get, <laughs> yeah. when you're going to get it, when it's best to take it, and understanding how a pension, again, annuities, you know, depending on when you take it, how much deferral you have, uh, you know, if you're a teacher, you know, the PSRS system and understanding 80 and out and all those types of things uh, are very important to make sure that you're going to get the same income that you're expecting to get. And one other thing when it comes to uh, pensions specifically is understanding whether they survive for your spouse. So usually when you take a pension, there are options whether you can say, all right, I'm going to take my max amount of pension and my spouse will get nothing if I pass away or maybe 50% of it survives, or in some cases you can set up where all of it goes to your spouse, no matter how long your spouse lives or you live. So understanding how much that costs you off the benefit is important too. So there's a lot of little things that most people aren't thinking about on a daily basis, but we help so many people retire here that these are kind of automatic for us to come up with. And um, I think they're important topics of discussion. Jake, I think a lot of people perked up when we talked about Social Security. We'll wrap this up pretty quick on Social Security, but do you think that Social Security is really going to be affected for people who are already in retirement or, let's say, getting ready to retire? Let's say that you're 60-ish. Do you think there's going to be much of a change in Social Security in those people's lifetime? You know, Jeff, this is one of those times where I don't know is the answer. I think it's less likely that people already taking Social Security will be affected. I would say if you are 50 right now, I think it's very likely that you will be affected by some changes coming down the pike. You know, if you're 62, probably not. But again, that's a total guess. We, we have a lot of people are like, surely Congress wouldn't cut people's existing benefits on Social Security. And I'm in that camp. But Congress does a lot of dumb stuff. And, <laughs> you know, I can't promise that the idiots up there in Washington aren't going to mess things up more than they already have. So, you know, I, I just don't know the answer to that, Jeff. And, and I think anybody that says they do is just speculating. We're talking about the five things that you should do just prior to retirement. And the final one, Jake, is start converting money from high-risk investments to higher certainty investments. 
Yeah, so I think that when you are accumulating money for retirement, so think, you know, you start funding your 401k when you're 20 years old and you start your career and you start funding it. For the most part, you should be, you know, having a fairly high risk, maybe very high risk, depending on your risk tolerance and other things. But when you're accumulating money, you have time on your side. So if things go down, you just keep funding it, it comes back. And I think it's important to make sure that when you're accumulating, you're taking in enough risk. When you get close to retirement, the opposite is true. You've spent 40 years accumulating your money or 30 years or whatever it is. And, you know, you've never really worried about it before. You just stuck it in a few funds and forgot about it. And you woke up with hundreds of thousands of dollars one day or millions in some cases. And that approach is a dangerous approach when you get close to retirement. You need to be able to have certainty on the day that you retire. You know, all the way up to retirement, really you want the market to stay as low as possible because every dollar you invest buys more shares the lower the market is. And so when you see the market tank and you're 40 years old, you should be rejoicing because every dollar you invest down there is going to buy more and more and more shares. It's when you're five years or closer to retirement that you have to be very careful about taking a big hit because it can delay retirement, it can change your retirement, it can change your income that you can have in retirement. And so it's important to understand how much risk you're taking. And like you said, Jeff, maybe move from higher risk things to higher certainty, or at least make some adjustments to reflect hey, I'm five years from retirement now. I need to not have the market hand me a 30 or 40% down year right as I'm about to retire. Jake, when you get into retirement, I think a lot of people think, well, I should have absolutely no risk at all. Do you think that that's a good idea? So I think, Jeff, that kind of depends on how much money you have saved versus how much money you need to take out each month to live on. And I think you can afford to take no risk if you don't need very much money off of your portfolio. Most people don't have that luxury where people need to take 4 5% off their portfolio each year to make ends meet. And so there's a balance that you have to strike there. You have to have enough safety, enough security to weather a big storm, but you also need to have a little bit of risk in there to where you can make enough return to try to replace some or all or more of what you are taking out as retirement income. Jake, before we continue with our program this morning, I want to take just a moment to remind our listeners how they can have a conversation with you to ask their questions about things that they should do just before retirement. If you're looking for answers, then request your no cost, no obligation, no judgment Floyd Financial Group Retirement Review by calling 417-889-7233. It's 417-889-7233. Now, when you call, you get a friendly voice in the other end of the line, more than likely Ashley, who will gather some basic information from you then set you up with a conversation with Jake or Randy to create a path towards a successful retirement. Now, remember, it's not going to cost you a dime, but it could uncover some blind spots that, when addressed, may help improve your quality of life in a retirement that, get this, could last as long as 30-plus years. Once again, 417-889-7233, the number to call. You can also request your complimentary consultation online at floydfinancialgroup.com. We appreciate you joining us each and every Saturday morning for Show Me the Money with Jake and Randy Floyd. My name is Jeff Shade. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about potential tax time bombs and more when our show continues right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. 
We're back with your financial catch of the day, and it's a big one. Here's more Show Me the Money Radio with your hosts, Jake Floyd and Jeff Shane. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd, and in this segment, we're going to be talking about how to avoid tax bombs. And you may have heard the term tax bomb thrown around before, but what that refers to is an abnormally large taxable event that you initiate, such as the sale of a valuable asset or a boost in income. You may be thinking, well, I'm not a billionaire. I don't need to worry about major taxable events, right? Well, the truth is you actually do. So let's start with the first one here, and that is going to be the sale of a home. How could that become a tax bomb? So on your primary residence, if you're married filing jointly, you can have up to 250000 per person or 500000 total exemption on your primary residence when it comes to capital gains tax. Let's talk about how that's taxed. So basically, in a normal situation, if you paid $100,000 for a house and you sold it for 200000 that means you owe tax on the difference of those numbers or $100,000. Capital gains tax, and we won't take time to go into all the nitty gritty, but capital gains are taxed differently than ordinary income if it's a long-term capital gain. But if it's your primary residence, you get an exemption of 500000 However, there's people right now that owned a house that was worth five or 600000 that's now worth a million or more. Mm-hmm. And some of these people are starting to test the boundaries of that. If you have a non-primary residence house or land sale or that kind of thing, you do not get that exemption. And so one way to avoid that potentially is use what's called a 1031 exchange. We call it dirt for dirt, meaning if you have land or a house that you are selling, if you set it up right on the front end and you have your intermediary and you have everything set up correctly, you can buy another piece of real estate and not have to pay the capital gains tax. You defer it into the next property. So that's one way to potentially head that off. But again, if you have more questions about that, we can talk about that when you come in. And again, the 1031 exchange primarily applies to investment real estate. So if you have that, as you said, using the 1031, it says you can exchange it for like-kind property. However, it is a loose term. You can exchange, let's say, farmland for you know parts of office buildings and so forth. But we're not going to get into that right now in detail. If you've got questions, once again, give the firm a call 417-889-7233 and get your questions answered there. But the sale of a home could be a tax bomb. The next one is rebalancing or liquidating your investments. Yeah, and so whenever you have a non-qualified account, uh, meaning a non-IRA or non-Roth IRA account or non-qualified plan, so anything outside of retirement money, when you buy and sell things, it generates capital gains or losses. And so if it's short term, it's taxed one way. If it's long term, it's taxed another way. And so understanding how all that works, you know, if you if you are just investing your own money, there's times where you can say, hey, I want to sell a little bit of this. And maybe you don't fully understand the repercussions of that. But if you paid very little for something, so let's say in this case, we have a lot of people in this area that own O'Reilly stock, right? Mm-hmm. So if you bought O'Reilly stock 20 years ago, chance are you have a basis or what you paid for it maybe in the $20 a share range and now it's worth $900 a share and so many people have a lot of capital gains so anything you sell off there almost all of it is taxable and so understanding how long you've held it understanding how it's going to be taxed either short-term or long-term gain and understanding what the tax rate is going to be based on other income that you have and that gain is very important and just 
simply understanding that you can sidestep some of the big downfalls. Like if you have a very highly appreciated position that you want to sell, a lot of times it makes sense to do it over two years or maybe even three years, depending on the position, depending on how much it is. But certainly if it's November and you're thinking about selling something, you know, it's $200,000 and you only have, you know, another 100000 in income yourself, it definitely could make sense to wait, sell half of it in this year, half of it next year, and spread that tax bomb out over a couple of years, making it two very small tax bombs, or maybe a tax grenade, Jeff, uh, (laughs) instead of one big, giant nuclear bomb, right? Right. We're talking about avoiding tax bombs with Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. And Jake, the next one is liquidating your retirement accounts. I understand that retirement account withdrawals count as taxable income, but not capital gains. That's correct. And so um, because that money has never had actual ordinary income tax paid on it, that's what you get charged whenever you take money out of your IRA or 401k. However, if it is a Roth IRA or 401k, then you do not pay taxes on it because you already paid the taxes up front. But not only that, you get the interest tax-free as well if it's been open more than five years and you're over 59 and a half when you take it out. Understanding how your income is going to look in retirement, like we talked about earlier, how much of your income is Social Security, how much of it is pension, how much of it is from non-qualified money, meaning non-IRA money, how much of it is from retirement accounts is very important because if you're up against like a tax threshold, so let's say, you know, you're in the 12% bracket, but adding another $20,000 worth of income would not push you to the next bracket. We can take that money out, but we don't want to push you into the next tax bracket so we can take a little bit out of savings instead of out of a retirement account. And that can help with your tax situation, not have to pay quite as much taxes. Many people may or may not know that basically the first tax bracket is 10%, the next one's 12%, and then there's a huge jump to 22% after that. So anything we can do to kind of stay under there is helpful. So when you're spending money out of uh, your retirement accounts, understanding what that's going to do to your income and how that's going to affect how much tax you pay is very important. And the next tax bomb could be triggered by required minimum distributions or RMDs. Yeah, so um, kind of in the same vein as the retirement account income, an RMD is a forced retirement account distribution, meaning depending on your age, the ages can vary quite a bit. It used to be 70 and a half, then it went to 72, then it went to 73, and then it will be 75 for certain people looking forward. But at some point, the government says, hey, it's time to pay Uncle Sam what he's due because you've deferred the taxes on this long enough and now we want our money. And so they require you to take a required minimum distribution. And depending on the size of your IRA, that can be a very large amount of money. And if you're not prepared for it, it can really send you for quite a loop on your taxes uh, if you're not careful, especially people that have a lot of other tax deferred interest, or maybe you simply have a lot of interest income. Other than that, finding a way to maybe turn off some of the other income when your RMD comes up can maybe save you some taxes. And earlier we were talking about health insurance, Jake, and we talked about Medicare Part B premiums, and you mentioned around $160 a month if you're making a certain income threshold. So taking RMDs uh, as well may trigger higher Medicare Part B premiums, so remember that. Next tax bomb, Jake, is an estate planning tax burden for heirs. Yeah, so 
There's actually quite a bit that goes into this one. You know, there's certain thresholds out there. A lot of people think that everybody pays a state tax or death tax, and that's not true. In fact, right now, you know, 99.9% of all people do not pay a state tax or death tax because the exemption for a married couple is about 22 to $24 million. Now, that being said, that's not the only part of the tax bomb that can happen when you pass away. If you leave an IRA to your child, you know, it used to be that you could stretch out those distributions over their lifetime. In 2020, that changed with the SECURE Act, and basically the way it works now is they have to take out all that money over 10 years instead of out over their lifetime. So understanding your kids' income and what that's going to do to them and what the best way to take that money out is, is also very important. Depending on the age of yourself, depending on the age of your child, you know, how much money they're making, what tax bracket they're in, if they're in another state that has higher state tax, these are all considerations when it comes to inheriting money, especially IRA money. And this is maybe one of the biggest tax bombs. In fact, there's a lot of stories. I think I don't think I've ever heard a real one where somebody actually owed more than they inherited, but you can get pretty close in the state of California because of all the different taxes that they have on estate tax at the federal level, but they also have taxes at the state level that put it to where on IRA money, you can pay upwards of 80% tax yeah. on an IRA. And so there's some people claiming that they've been stuck with a bill large than what they inherited. I haven't seen an actual true version of that yet, but you can certainly pay a whole lot if you live in California. <laughs> I know that. I lived there for a period of time and there's a very good reason why I don't live there anymore and a very good reason why I'll never be moving back there. Examples of tax bombs that we talked about, the sale of a home, rebalancing or liquidating your investments, liquidating your retirement accounts, required minimum distributions, and estate planning tax burdens for heirs. I'm sure that people do have questions about avoiding tax bombs, uh, Jake, and I know that you've got a little help under that roof there at Floyd Financial Group in the form of Rod Link. Now, he really does help you in terms of tax minimization and making these tax bombs more like grenades or maybe even firecrackers, right? Yeah, absolutely. I like I like the firecracker analogy. Yeah, Jeff. or a That's sparkler. Let's let's really bring a, it down. A lot of tax <laughs> problems are, are impossible to make go totally away, but if we can right. lessen the blow of it, that's just more money in your pocket. Anything we don't pay in taxes is more money in your pocket. And so, absolutely, Jeff, we have Rod Link here in the office, and he is a very good resource when it comes to some of the more complicated tax questions that we have. Or if we want to have say, hey, what if we sold this position, or what if we sold this property? What would that actually do to us? And and so uh, we can utilize Rod to uh, help us do those calculations if we have a more complex situation. As I've said many times in this program, Rod Link is worth his weight in gold when it comes to tax planning, tax minimization, and a whole host of other things too. Rod's just a very good resource to have under that roof there at Floyd Financial Group. If you've joined us late, this is Show Me the Money with Jake Floyd. My name is Jeff Shade, and we've just finished discussing tax bombs. If you want to hear the show again, don't worry. We're also a podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcast and search for Show Me the Money with Randy and Jake Floyd. You're going to get this show and all of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your wealth and your journey towards a successful retirement. Well, Jake, we just get 
get started and then we're out of time. For Jake Floyd, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out, have a great weekend, won't you? We'll talk again next week with another edition of Show Me the Money right here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. The information provided in the preceding program is for educational purposes only and are not intended as investment advice for any individual or entity. All information contained herein believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representations as to its completeness or accuracy. The opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not constitute financial, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your financial professional before executing any financial strategy. Financial planning offered through Floyd Financial Group, LLC, an investment advisor registered in the state of Missouri.